Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, how the state went from a $2 billion-plus surplus to a pretty big deficit. And one local artist vowed not to buy a single new piece of clothing for a year. What she learned from that New Year's resolution. But first, last year, the drought on the Colorado River was eased some by generous rain and snowfall throughout the southwest. But so far this winter, we're seeing what some are calling a snow drought. Snow totals across the West are lower than average for this time of year. Ski resorts are making snow to get skiers on the slopes, and all of it has big implications for the shrinking Colorado River, which flows to about 40 million people across the Southwest. Here to tell us more about how we're looking so far this winter is Alex Hager, who covers the Colorado River Basin for KUNC. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Lauren. Begin with the numbers here for us, Alex. Like, what does it look like so far when we say that these averages are lower than normal? Well, it's a it's a little meager. So when we're talking about the amount of snow that falls in the West as it pertains to the Colorado River, most of what we're looking at is in the state of Colorado. Mm-hmm. Two-thirds of the water in the Colorado River starts as snow in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And right now it's not looking great. Most regions of that state are about 70%, 60% of average for this time of year. And if we look at the other two states that account for the the vast majority of the water that starts as snow in the Colorado River, Utah and Wyoming, they're looking pretty much the same. Uh, That has left us with a year that is well below normal. Uh, I'm looking at a chart right now of the last two decades. It looks like this year is either the bottom or or one of the bottom three years in terms of, you know, over the last 20 years, Mm. uh, you know, amount of snow for, for January 4th. Right. And as you're sort of describing there, like the the water in the Colorado River, the supply of water there has mostly to do with the snowfall up north in the mountains, less so to do with whether or not we get rain down here, right? That's right. That's right. Um, Most of the water in the Colorado River starts as snow. A lot of it uh, stays snow uh, into the spring and kind of slowly melts off, giving water managers this reliable base of kind of trickle that fills up the major reservoirs. And Mm -hmm. and because of that, very little of the water in the system falls as rain, um, especially, you know, water falling as rain in Arizona and, and Nevada. If you do look at the few areas that have snow in uh, Arizona, they are also well below average. There's just a few measuring sites and and they're showing uh, about, you know, 60 percent for the highest and 25 percent for the lowest. Okay, so so scientists, water managers, climatologists, they're watching this snowfall very closely. We want those ski resorts to be full of snow. Are they concerned at this point? Ski resorts are concerned to an extent. Um, I talked with uh, an an industry analyst who who kind of studies these things. And he said, look, you know, although there is pretty limited terrain opening, especially at this point in the year when a lot of your trips are, you know, families coming for the holidays, they've Mm -hmm. had these trips booked for months, as long as they are spinning some lifts folks are going to come regardless. They've already booked their flights. They've already booked their hotels. And 
because of the way that the ski industry has been changing, a lot of ski resorts and the companies that own them rely more on kind of pre-sales of season passes. Mm. So regardless of whether or not people are actually coming, regardless of whether people are skiing, regardless of whether they're enjoying their skiing, those companies have been selling passes that, you know, people are already kind of locking in over the summer and fall. Uh, there was a recent earnings call from Vail Resorts where they said they expect 73% of their skier visits worldwide to come from season pass holders. Mm. So if you know a, a person with an Epic Pass or an Icon Pass or someone who has some sort of season ticket to a ski resort, they are contributing to a trend that means less anxiety for ski resorts, even when the snow is bad. Even when the snow is bad, not, not the fresh powder they want, right? What about scientists and water managers? Like, is there time for, you know, the snowfall to, to, to come back to average to, to help out here and, and even things out in the next couple of months? There's definitely time. The scientists who study this do not do an awful lot of hand-wringing if there is a dry December. Okay. It's not a great start. It has them kind of ready to be on edge. But, you know, I talked to the assistant state climatologist here in Colorado, and she said it's really dependent on what we see in January and February. Um, there is a lot of time to make it up. We will need a pretty significant January and February with a lot of snow to actually start closing that gap. Unfortunately, because of climate change, that is less likely to happen. It is warmer and oftentimes drier. And so the probability that we are able to make that up in a couple months is relatively low, but there is definitely still a chance. So then the big question is, what if it doesn't, right? Like what if January and February are low snowfall totals too? What does that do for the water supply for the Colorado River? Well, we're really looking at how the amount of snowmelt and runoff influences major reservoirs in the Colorado River Basin. Um, so, you know, we hear a lot about Lake Powell and Lake Mead, and yet again, they are kind of the stars of this show. So realistically, we are not in immediate, immediate crisis because there was a really good snow year last year. We're not going to run out of water. There is not going to be uh, sort of a doomsday scenario if okay. we have limited snow. But it is going to make things kind of stressful for the people who manage those reservoirs, especially Lake Powell, which stores water in Utah and northern Arizona. If water dips too low there, it risks infrastructural damage to the big dam that holds it back and the hydropower turbines inside that provide electricity to 5 million people. Yeah. And so... A lot of water managers are mostly focused on keeping water levels high enough to avoid infrastructural damage. That's somewhere around 20 to 30 percent. And so they might have to do some creative math to take water from other reservoirs and move it down to Lake Powell. Mm -hmm. But if we have a low snow year, it will introduce some anxiety over how to manage that reservoir. But ultimately, I expect that most everyone will be getting the water they expect to get, farms and cities from Wyoming down to Mexico. Okay. All right. Well, not all bad then. Alex Hager covers the Colorado River Basin for KUNC, joining us to talk about snowfall this winter. Alex, thanks as always. Thanks, Lauren. Have a good day.
The 2024 legislative session kicks off next week at the state capitol. Governor Katie Hobbs will give her State of the State address on Monday. And from a budget shortfall to school vouchers to affordable housing, lawmakers have a lot on their minds. Yesterday on the show, we heard from Republican State Senator T.J. Shope, the Senate's president pro tem, about his priorities for the coming year. Today, let's turn to the other side of the aisle and Democratic Senator Christine Marsh. I sat down with her in our studio's recently to talk about how Democrats are approaching the 2024 session. I hope that it tones down the environment and it is not quite as divisive as it was last session. I'm hoping that there is going to be more of an appetite for some bipartisanship, which uh, we desperately need. We have a lot of big issues to solve in Arizona. And if Democratic ideas are not even seeing the light of day, then we are missing out on some really good ideas. And Mm -hmm. that has been the past few sessions. I would really hope that since it is an election year and since I'm thinking that things will be a little bit more toned down, that we might see some more bipartisanship. However, I'm also a very hopeful person, (laughs) and I recognize that the chances of this happening are probably not as high as I would like them to be. As a Democrat in the minority for, I mean, the entire time you've been in the legislature, you've been in the minority. How does that sort of change the way you approach things? Like, where do you find your opportunities to have influence, to make sure your voice is heard, to get in the room, to get on the committee, that kind of thing? Like, is this sort of a strategic game in a way because you've got to sort of find your moments? Yeah, it is definitely to some extent a strategic game. It comes down to even who I have Mm co-sponsor bills of mine and and how many. I mean, it it is all of a strategy. And I think it's unfortunate. I don't think it should be such a strategic thing to just get a bill to see the light of day. But that is the reality that we are operating in down there. But quite frankly, I wish that everybody would look at a bill, period, Hmm. and not who is sponsoring it one way or the other. There will also be a different conversation surrounding the budget, which is obviously the only and the biggest thing that the legislature has to do next session or any session. Um, Less money in the coffers. We're looking at a potential deficit this time around. Does that make it more difficult or maybe give you more opportunity to work in a bipartisan way, you think? I think it's going to make it so that there is more potential for some bipartisanship. At least I'm hoping that. I have not actually been down there during a deficit year. Mm. And my understanding from others who have is that it is ironically less contentious than when there is money to spare and money to invest in various priorities. So Mm. I am hoping that that is the case because, you know, we are looking at somewhere around a 300 million deficit Mm -hmm. and I think it's going to be really interesting on where we can find those opportunities to streamline, to maybe be a little bit more fiscally responsible. But one way or another, we have to figure out how we're going to cover that shortfall Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. without causing pain to communities. So what are your priorities in terms of looking at that? Like, what are you really going to go to the bat for in terms of trying to make sure that it is not cut? I am definitely going to be going to bat for kids care. Mm -hmm. We expanded kids care this past session, and I would like to see that left in place. I'm going to be going to bat for the housing trust fund to ensure that that doesn't face any cuts. 
And of course, I mean, I'm still a teacher. My heart and my roots are in teaching. I'm going to definitely be going to bat for our public schools. Yeah, let me ask you about that because you are a teacher and you have been involved in the education fight for a long time now. Um, I I think most of the conversation around education, and correct me if I'm wrong, will probably be about vouchers, universal vouchers, the expansion of that program again this session. We've seen the numbers continue to rise on how much that is costing the state, and we don't really know where that'll stop. What are your priorities there? Like, do you think, what do you think is reasonable to expect in terms of trying to work with Republicans? Do you think there's any wiggle room there? I hope there is because we have safety issues at stake here. And and that's where I'm going to be spending my focus is Hmm. we have to get fingerprint clearance cards across the finish line, for example. Right now, I mean, any private school or potentially even micro school that is accepting ESA voucher money, those adults who are going to be having contact with minor children need fingerprint cards. Hmm. So I'm going to be definitely fighting that battle. Uh, We absolutely need to put in some protections and transparency for our special ed kids who are moving from a public school into a private school or who have already been in a private school, Mm -hmm. quite frankly. The federal protections that they give up and some of the aspects of what they would be experiencing in a private school. We need to make sure that those parents fully understand what they are potentially giving up and make sure that they are making an intelligent choice. And so, yeah, a lot of my focus is going to be around the transparency, accountability, and first and foremost, the safety issues. Okay. You've already dropped your first bill of the session. This one has to do with legalizing drug testing equipment. I know this is a personal issue for you as well. Can you tell us why this was your first priority, the first thing you wanted to get on the table? Yeah, this was already high on my priority list as I was just a candidate. And then my son died. Um, He took, you know, what he thought was a Percocet and it was laced with fentanyl and it killed him. Um, about six months before I won my first election. And so that, of course, this issue that was already high priority became even more so. So, yes, I wanted that to be my absolute first bill. Uh, And what it does is it legalizes, takes out from under the drug paraphernalia umbrella, all testing equipment, which we need. We have xylazine coming down the pike that is exponentially more deadly than fentanyl And at this point, even if there was any testing type equipment or resources available, which right now it's so new that there isn't, that to my knowledge, we couldn't use them anyway because it's under that umbrella of drug paraphernalia and thus illegal. Mm -hmm. Let me first say I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. And you were, you've you made some progress on issues like this, at least before. Last session, you were able to get a bill through that legalized testing strips for fentanyl. Do you see this as sort of an expansion on that work? Yes. And that was a very narrow bill on purpose. And it put in some exceptions under that broader umbrella of drug paraphernalia, like except for fentanyl testing strips. Mm-hmm. This bill that I'm dropping this session just flat out takes all testing equipment out from under. Let me ask you lastly about one other major issue, which is, of course, housing and homelessness in the community. Um, Republicans, I know, are planning some new legislation to address our state's housing crisis, um, legislation that largely failed last session. What are Democratic priorities in this? Where do you want to try to influence things in this conversation? 
Well, the housing situation is a high priority for our entire caucus, and we are right now behind the scenes hammering out and working on specific legislation to address that issue. But it's, um, I think it's among the highest priority, if not the highest within the top three or four of all of the Senate Democrats, and I believe House Democrats as well, is to get in there and try to mitigate this crisis as much as possible. Do you see this as connected to the homelessness crisis that we're also seeing throughout the Valley now? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. They go hand in hand. Yes. So any solution probably will as well? Yes. I think most of the solutions that we are looking at for housing will mitigate the homelessness issue that we are also facing. That's also a crisis. And I have high hopes for, you know, what we are as a caucus able to come up with. All right. We will leave it there. State Senator Christine Marsh, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you for the honor of being here. I appreciate it. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, a textile artist who repairs clothes with style. It's meant to look like you rendered it like some intention and care and thoughtfulness went into it. And it's okay for people to see that. And mm. in fact, it's good for people to see that. We'll hear about the process of visible mending in a new edition of our series Made in Arizona. But first, Arizona is facing budget shortfalls for the rest of this fiscal year, as well as the new one that'll start on July 1st. That's after starting last year with a roughly $2.5 billion surplus. Legislative budget analysts say revenues through November were $331 million lower than the estimate made for the current budget. Governor Katie Hobbs will present her budget proposal a week from Friday, and many lawmakers are no doubt already thinking about their priorities as well. To get a sense of what 2024 may hold for the state's finances, my co-host Mark Brody spoke with Robert Robb, who writes about Arizona politics and public policy on Substack. And they started with what Robb sees as the main culprits for going from surplus to deficit. I think there was one uh, proximate cause, uh, and that was the decision by the Republican legislative leadership to spend all of a $2.5 billion surplus, which was inherited for um, the budget year that we're currently in. And they did so in, in my judgment, a fiscally irresponsible uh, fashion rather than going through the kind of difficult debates and deliberations and appropriations. What's the priority? How much money does each program get? Uh, the decision was made to let every legislature legis, legislator spend tens of millions of dollars on whatever he or she wants. A particular pet project kind uh, of thing. Yeah, I, well, and pure uh, pork. Well, unexpected things happen. Uh, and you can look at those unexpected things and blame them. Income tax uh, revenues are uh, below expectations, so you can blame the tax cut. Uh, the uh, voucher program is costing more than budgeted. So you can blame the voucher program and people are doing that. Uh, But in reality, there was ample resources going in if prudently uh, managed uh, to have survived those surprises and not be facing a deficit. So what you're basically saying is had 
state legislators and the governor decided to, instead of give all the legislators who voted for the budget X millions of dollars, to say, okay, we think maybe the ESA program, the voucher program is going to cost more. Unexpected things could happen, which a lot of forecasters expect unexpected things to happen, even if they don't know what exactly they're going to be. If they had done those things instead of what they did, we wouldn't be in the position that we're in now? Uh, correct. The, the The deficit is $400 million. Uh, the anticipated uh, income tax revenues are running $250 million uh, less than budgeted. The uh, voucher program is running – Three hundred and fifty million more. So you take a two point five billion dollar surplus, you absorb those two things, and you still have about one point eight billion to spend. So when you look ahead then to January and beyond, are you thinking that we're going to be looking at mid-year cuts to try to make up that four hundred million dollar deficit? And even regardless of what you think about that. Do you think it's safe to say that going forward, because there's a shortfall looming for the next fiscal year starting on on July 1 of 2024, are you anticipating spending cuts going into that budget as well? I think certainly the budget uh, challenge uh, for the fiscal 2025 year, which is what they will be appropriating uh, next session, uh, is – extremely challenging and it's deeper than is currently being projected. Mm. It's currently being projected at $450 million. Um, the uh, legislative budget staff who, who made that projection are gems of state government. They're not responsible for what I'm about to say. Um, but the legislature has decided to denominate certain expenditures that are recurring as one time. And those are excluded from that legislative budget staff estimate. Um, there's probably at least 250 to 300 million in that category. Um, and so the, the, the deficit is even deeper. Um, so I anticipate um, that uh, Governor Hobbs will try to cobble together a budget that tries to minimize the cuts, trying to predict what the legislature is going to do is virtually impossible because they opted not to go through an appropriations process and instead paste it all together with uh, giving uh, these grants to every single legislature. Well, and it's really interesting because earlier this year, when everybody was saying, well, the budget's never going to get done, the Republicans and the, and the governor, the Democratic governor, are never going to be able to get together, it got done really early in large part because of what you're saying where everybody – got some amount of money to spend on what they wanted, given that that's off the table, and also, I guess, maybe to an extent, given the fact that this is an election year, at least for the legislators, how like how might that process look like? Is it going to be a worse version of what we had expected we were going to see in 2023? Uh, it has the potential to be a much worse um, than what we had anticipated in in 2023. Uh, the process begins with Governor Hobbs. She she will offer the first um, shot at the budget. And it will be interesting and important as to whether she presents a governing document, something that kind of recognizes the politics and at least provides a framework with when, within which you can have that bipartisan discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, or she presents a political budget, um, which uh, is full of unrealistic 
solutions to the problems, the physical problems that the state uh, now faces. Even if she presents a governing document uh, based upon the track record, uh, there wouldn't be a lot of hope uh, that the Republican legislative leadership uh, would respond in kind. Uh, It is impossible to accomplish what needs to be accomplished without it being bipartisan. There's an old convention of wisdom at the state capitol that it's easier to do a budget when there's no money, right? Like when you have to – you can basically say no to everybody as opposed to saying yes to some and no to others, although as we saw in 2023, it's basically yes to pretty much everybody in the legislature. Do you think that that holds true given the current climate with Republicans holding a narrow majority in the legislature, a Democratic governor – All the legislators are up for elections, some running for other offices. It depends upon the attitude of the governor and the legislature, legislators. When Janet Napolitano was governor and Republicans were in control Mm -hmm. of the legislature, uh, there were successful budgets negotiated on a bipartisan basis, both in times of shortage and times of plenty. Uh, But because she – was willing to accept Republican priorities uh, and because Republican leadership uh, understood the need to create a bipartisan budget if someone in the other party happens to have to sign it in order for it to become law. Uh, I don't see the same leadership attitude uh, either from the governor's office Uh, but even more uh, not from Republicans in the legislature uh, to create that kind of an environment uh, in which there's a recognition that uh, we ain't going to get our own way about this. It's going to be something that we're going to negotiate. All right. That is Bob. Rob, Bob, thanks for coming in. I appreciate it. Always enjoy it. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. Financial fraud targeting senior citizens continues to be a significant problem, with criminals becoming more and more sophisticated. And the amount of money lost in these scams is staggering. Brian Watson knows all about this. He used to work for the IRS and is now community outreach specialist for the nonprofit Rose, resources outreach to safeguard the elderly. He spoke with my co-host Mark Brody more about this, and they started with how often elderly residents here and elsewhere are targeted by financial scams? Well, it's a $3.1 billion problem, according to the 2022 FBI elder fraud report. And that's an 84% increase from the prior year. Wow. And that's assuming the numbers are accurate. We know people don't report being victimized. So the number is going to be much higher. Why don't people report? Well, number one is embarrassment. Any presentation I do, I ask that question and everyone gives me that as the number one answer. But also the futility. Why why should I report it? I'm not getting it back or I don't even know who to call and, you know, what's the point? And sometimes people don't even know they've been victimized. Yeah. And then lately I've kind of come to the conclusion for older folks, older adults, 
they don't want to tell their kids they've been victimized in a scam because they may lose their financial independence. Because the kids might say, oh, look, mom or dad fell for this. Clearly, there's some kind of cognitive decline. We've got to get more involved. Maybe they shouldn't be in charge of their own finances anymore, that kind of thing. Right. It's a financial intervention. And then they take the checkbook. Maybe they um, take the ability to have internet. Maybe they take the ability to live on their own or even drive a vehicle. So how are crooks targeting this population? Like I assume it's not just the old, you know, the stereotypical Nigerian prince anymore. No, we are so far past that. I mean, those emails still persist. But back then it was the schemes were easy to spot and they weren't so prevalent. Now these gangs of criminals are operating enterprises of fraud. A lot of them are international. They are ruthless financial predators. They're far more organized. Um, They usually will start contacting people either by phone or some sort of internet, uh, you know, like a social um, social media or some sort of dating site or something like that. And what is their pitch? Like, what are they what are they hawking? Like, is it we've heard a lot, for example, about like gift cards, things like that, people buying Visa gift cards, Amazon gift cards. Is that kind of how they get in? Well, right. So every every scheme has three parts. It's a contact out of the blue. So phone, email, text message, social media. Then they want to elevate your emotions. So usually it's fear, greed, isolation, need. They, They want you to react. And then they always ask for money. So phone scams are not they're not that complicated. It's just a phone. You pick up the phone and answer it. But they're so good at what they do. They're professionals. They're reading a script. And they may tell you your social security is going to get cut off or your Medicare or your grandchild's in jail. They want you to react. Um, Or the long play ones like the romance scams, it'll start out like a message on social media or a pop-up on your screen. And then they slowly build a, a, a relationship to the point where they get you to invest in cryptocurrency. So you are working with this nonprofit. I would imagine that you are coming across folks who have been victimized. Also, with your time, you used to work at the IRS. Like you mentioned the amount of money overall, but like how much money for an individual are we talking about that they could potentially be scammed out of? Right. So back in the old days, it was nickel and dime stuff, you know, like a few thousand dollars here, you know, even the IRS phone scam, you know, it was a small amount of money. But according to the FBI's elder fraud report, from 2022, over 5,000 people lost over 100,000. Wow. So it's big time. I Just starting this job, I've met people that have lost 700,000, 200,000, and I just heard of another one that's a half a million. So the stakes are much higher. They're, they're much better at what they do. And the thing is, is they're so much better at being criminals than we are at protecting our money. You just can't get in the ring with them. They, they will get you. So for folks who have lost like $500,000, $700,000, is that money retrievable or is it, are they just out that, that money? It depends. You know, a lot of it is through cryptocurrencies um, and a lot of people think, oh, I'll, you know, it's gone. But there are actually ways to claw it back because it has the blockchain basically is like an electronic paper trail. But you have to find a law enforcement agency that one, has the time and – Two, has the knowledge to be able to do it. And there are cyber experts at the FBI, Secret Service, IRS, local police departments at the various counties. But they're, they're overwhelmed. You know, they don't have enough people to track down all these victims. That's why we are focusing on the prevention side. We, it's so much easier to spend a few minutes on the front end than spending days and years on the back end trying to get money. Well, so what then do you tell people to be on the lookout for? Like, how do you try to prevent this from happening? 
Okay, so basic stuff. Don't answer the phone if it's someone you don't know. Uh, don't click on emails that have hyperlinks. Um, and then just be really cautious on social media. They're, criminals are out there trolling and they will just send a little note to you, comment on a post and they'll start a little innocent conversation and two months later, your online boyfriend, girlfriend. And then they're doing that to dozens of other people possibly and eventually they're going to take your money. What do you hear from victims? Like what, what do they tell you about like how they found themselves in this kind of situation? So yeah, it depends on the scam. Um, Sometimes they just they, – they, they're like rule followers. I found a lot of people that fall for these have a compliant personality. They follow rules. They respect authority. If someone says they're from the bank, they believe it. If someone says they're from the US government, they believe it. So they're almost like predetermined or, or, or you know, predestined to fall for these type of schemes. So it really behooves you to kind of be a little mean and be – just you know, hang up the phone, be a little rude. Do you find that – the folks with whom you're working, like, are they aware quickly that they are the victims? Can it take a little bit longer maybe if you're not, for example, checking your bank account online every so often? Maybe you're waiting for a statement to come in the mail, something like that. Like, can it go on for longer because some of these victims maybe aren't aren't as tech savvy perhaps? Yeah, well, you know, I remember one time at the IRS office, my coworker was pleading with a lady to stop sending money to this bank account in Nigeria and she said, no, I'm going to send my boyfriend money. It's my mm-hmm. money. I can do what I want. And my coworker said, ma'am, there's five other women here in the United States sending money to the same bank account. He is not your boyfriend. He's a scammer. But she refused. But then other victims, they kind of realize it and then they're in so deep they really don't know what to do. And a lot of times these scammers will tell you not to talk to anyone else, a huge red flag. Um, and it's one of the hardest things to do is get someone out of a romance scam because their emotions are so high and they're not making good decisions. As sad as it is to say, is it safe to say, do you think, that like these scams will just continue on for time immemorial, right? Like it's it's going to keep going. There's really no way to actually put an end to this. No, it, it's re- we really just have to educate people not to get involved. We know they're going to keep doing it because it's so profitable. And we have this huge generation of older adults that retired that did not grow up with technology. Right. We're a very trusting generation. So eventually it will wane at some point. Um, but now we're also dealing with artificial intelligence. So those really poorly written Nigerian emails are much better looking now. And then there's always going to be a new variation. So it's a battle for all of us. All right. That is Brian Watson with the nonprofit Rose. Brian, thanks for coming in. Thank you very much, Mark. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. Most of us wear our clothes until they are worn out and then we throw them away. Or we wear them until we're sick of them and then stuff them in big bags to drop off at Goodwill. But our next guest takes a different approach. Tasha Miller-Griffith is a textile artisan and educator based in Flagstaff. And she's the latest maker in our series, Made in Arizona. It just, it connected me to my roots and it's just something so portable and inexpensive and felt that I could take risk with embroidery in a way that I couldn't take risks in other areas of art. A lot of my paintings, gravity doesn't matter a whole lot. From there, I had a request for uh, hand-dyed wedding gowns and that's how it started. (laughs) So I didn't plan to be a wedding designer. I just knew I wanted to work for myself. I love to sew. I love to just be in my piece. 
try to tug at people's heartstrings. I try to do something disturbing, but usually a duality piece. But this year was all about, you know what? I don't want any madness in my work. I want to really just be this big, beautiful place that I want to live in. Dance wasn't something that is necessarily seen in galleries, you know? And I just remember being like, this is the key. This is how dance gets out there. I escaped real life and I went back in time. When Griffith's clothes wear out, she mends them, but not in the usual way where you're trying to make your repairs disappear. She visibly mends them. Picture layers of stitching, often in bright colors and interesting patterns, mending a tear or patches of pattern material sewn on top of a hole. It's an intentional and climate-friendly way of making your clothes last. And Griffith told me it's countercultural, too. She recently showed me how this visible mending works. Here is our conversation. Visible mending is pretty self-explanatory. It's mending that is not meant to be hidden. It's not meant to look like the garment was never damaged. It's meant to look like you mended it like some intention and care and thoughtfulness went into it. And it's okay for people to see that. And mm. in fact, it's good for people to see that. There's like a process involved there, like transparency almost, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a global movement that has been going for, gosh, I don't know, decades probably. Yeah. Tell me a little bit, Tasha, about your own background in this and how you got into it. I know you kind of teach this, but also other things with textiles. You're a textile artist in this way. How did you come across visible mending? So I was really lucky to grow up in a family of makers and tinkerers. And my mom sewed a lot of clothes for me when I was a kid, and she taught me to sew and to knit. And uh, my dad's mom was a weaver and did a little natural dyeing. And so I kind of, yeah, I was really lucky to Mm. already have some exposure to that kind of world when I was little. And that said, none of those people really mended in the way of like darning socks, you know, (laughs) that I knew. Um, And it took me getting deeper into things. And I started to get interested in spinning and natural dye and felting and things that are kind of closer to the source. And thinking a lot about my personal ecological impact and my relationship to materials and how that reflects into the world. And so mending became a big part of my practice, my Mm -hmm. creative practice. And I have a few things that I have decided I'm going to mend until I can't mend them anymore to see (laughs) what I learned from that. And I've learned a lot from that and just a lot from, in general, trying to keep my stuff going longer and a lot for my students, too, as I interact with people who are also interested in these types of things. Yeah. Okay, so you have to tell us about those things that you have that you are mending until you can (laughs) mend them no more. What is it? One of them is a pair of socks that somebody sent me, but they're hand-knit socks. And I have mended them so many times in successive. There's like the patches that you can (laughs) see on the purple socks, but there's 12 layers in some 12 parts. layers. That's so great. Okay, so show us what you have there, too, and describe this for me as I'm watching you here, because it, it, this is a great example of what we mean by visible mending. So you're holding up a sock, yes. and and you can see the patchwork on it, but it's not just patchwork. Like, there's some, there's an art to this. Yeah, so this is, um, it's a purple sock. It's a sock that I knit. The patching that's on it is the same stitch pattern as the socks themselves. Mm. 
but it's made using a needle and thread so that you can trace over your knitting essentially mm -hmm. and it's a really good technique for socks because it has all the properties that the original knitting has it's stretchy it's thick and cushy and it can be packed really tightly together which helps things last longer mm -hmm. helps your stitching last longer mm -hmm. and this is something that i have had a lot a lot of practice at One of the main things that i teach in my workshops yeah. So, I mean, there's there's something about sustainability here, which I think you mentioned, but there's also like, this is really, it almost seems countercultural to me right now. Like there is such a consumer culture that drives so much of what we do. We buy so much. And this is the opposite of that. This is using something that you would normally say, I have used it up. I am throwing it away or giving it away or whatever it may be and keeping it. Do you think about it in those terms? Oh, yeah, 100%. It's definitely, I think about this all the time. Yeah, it's, um, I can't remember where this quote comes from, but someone said, like, contentment is revolutionary mm -hmm. in our society, and using what you have is revolutionary, and thinking about the textiles in your life and your clothing as something that you're on a journey with, rather than something that you're going to have once and throw away is also revolutionary mm -hmm. and all of those ideas to me are so key to moving past this time of crazy rampant consumerism into something that is actually going to last like not just you know the sustainability using resources wisely thinking about where things come from is a huge part of it and also having that agency having that ownership and that ability to care for your own things, I think is also essential to a future where we as humans are going to be, you know, are going to be happy. Hmm. That's so interesting. So how long have you had that pair of socks that you've mended, you know, 12 times over? That pair of socks I have been mending for a decade or so, maybe a wow. little bit longer. Wow. And it's a pair of socks, right? Um, So mm -hmm. it turns a pair of socks, something that could be very normal and very easily thrown away into something that means a lot to you personally, too, it sounds like. What kinds of reactions do you get, Tasha, from people who you teach this to? Like, is it is there a lot of healing involved in this? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the people, if you sign up for a workshop on visible mending, you're probably already interested in some of these ideas <laughs> and how this can be when you're mending in this way where you're not trying to hide it it can be a really great vehicle for creativity too and so you're putting your own personal expression into whatever you're making and there's always a lot of different ways that you could mend something a lot of different choices you could make and mm -hmm. so how you make those choices is also creative and fun yeah. Okay. So is there a, a technique that you have that's really creative, really weird, really interesting that you love and want to tell us about that's beyond sort of the, the patching of the sock or something like that? I'm an artisan. So to me, where my happy place is where creativity intersects with the really practical. So yeah, yeah. I love having the things that I've mended and I love wearing them. And I don't tend to make anything that's so outlandish that it won't hold up well or anything like that. <laughs> but yeah, but there is a lot of room for creativity and just, I love making different patterns. And like, if I'm making a patch or like you think of a normal patch where I take another piece of fabric and I sew it onto something mm -hmm. 
And then what I normally do is I stitch around the outside to hold it down and then I make some kind of pattern in the middle. So like it can be super simple, just right. squares or lines of stitching that kind of help all those layers meld together. Or it could be like on this one, I kind of echoed the one of the motifs that's in the original woven part of the jacket. Right, on the patch, yeah. Mm-hmm, as part of the stitching. So I like doing things like that and just letting, you know, it's still very practical, but I can let my creativity also show through. Yeah, a beautiful melding of the creative and the practical there. All right, that is Tasha Miller-Griffith, a textile artisan and educator, joining us to talk more about visible mending. Tasha, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for showing me some of your work. It's fascinating. Thanks, Lauren. Yeah, this is great. Now let's turn to someone who puts this kind of visible mending into practice. Julie Hampton is a local artist and writer, and a few years ago, she made herself a seemingly difficult New Year's resolution, not to buy a single new item of clothing for an entire year. This week on the show, as 2024 kicks off, we are featuring Arizonans who made out-of-the-ordinary New Year's resolutions and actually stuck with them. I spoke with Hampton more about hers. I typically, a friend who is another writer, we typically come up with a mantra for the year Mm -hmm. and kind of advocate for the mantra throughout the year, reminding ourselves of the mantra. But I'm not a huge resolution person. Mantras like, give us an example. Oh, is it bringing me up or is it bringing me down? That's a good one. Yeah. So like kind of just a filter through which we can kind of uh, process anything that's going on in the year. <laughs> I like that. I <laughs> like that. sort of stay positive. Yeah. Okay. So a couple of years ago, you decided to do a real New Year's resolution. Yes. And this had to do with buying clothing, basically. Anything new? What were the parameters exactly? Basically a fashion fast. Mm. So not buying a single item of clothing. Although I did give myself an exception for um, socks and underwear if needed. <laughs> Although I, I, I have that. repaired underwear, which just seems so ridiculous, but <laughs> I just thought it'd be fun. That's so fun. <laughs> so clearly this involved a lot of mending, which we'll talk about yes. in a minute. But first tell me, what prompted this? Like, what got you thinking about the idea that you did not want to buy any new item of clothing for a year? Well, I mean, I've been doing some, you know, obviously sustainability. I'm a teacher. Um, and so I, students have done many projects on sustainability and just thinking about and in my own research, realizing how many items items we actually have. I think there's a figure out there that says, you know, Americans typically have 300,000 items in their household. Jeez. <laughs> when you when you kind of try to fathom that, you're like, how? How does that happen? And even though I go to estate sales and, you know, yard sales or Goodwill or different thrift shops to pick things up, there's still an, you know, you're acquiring, acquiring, acquiring. And so I'm just really trying to be conscious about what I acquire And then making sure what I acquire is something that's going to last for a long time. And if it doesn't, then finding a way to repurpose that. Finding a way to repurpose that. Okay. How would you describe your personal style when it comes to fashion? Eclectic. I mean, I I appreciate new items, but I also love to kind of mix and match, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of vintage pieces with something new. All right. So describe what this year was like, this year of fashion fasting for you, like step by step. Was there like a day you found yourself completely stuck on this? I think I was probably in a Nordstrom rack when Uh. I decided (laughs) to actually commit to the fashion fast because I was not that excited about what was on the racks. And I was like, I can do this. I was part of the the reason this came up is because I was in a textiles class and, you know, 
part of the textiles class was to present on an artist. And I think somebody must have presented somebody like a on somebody who was doing visible mending or kind of um, mending as a, you know, sustainable project. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of intrigued by that. And then, did, you know, through my own research, continued to find other people that were doing this as a way of like being more conscious about the environment because fast fashion has such a huge impact on the environment. Yeah. Did you get really bored of your clothes? No, honestly, <laughs> I, I feel like I've I've done a great job collecting certain items. And then when you travel, like I, there'll there'll be times where I'll travel for a whole month and I don't I do not check luggage. Mm. And so I have to be very conscious about what I pack. And I you know, when you when you're wearing the same clothes, yeah, maybe after a month it gets kind of boring when you're only having the you know, maybe ten or twenty items in rotation. But I bring summer clothes in, winter clothes out and um, just kind of rotate through. So I, I don't easily get bored. No. And you didn't really get tempted, it sounds like, to buy something. You didn't see anything at any point and say like, oh, I really wish I could buy that. Um, <laughs> no, because I, I basically had to stay away from most, ah, most so you stores. you didn't even go. Okay. So no Last Chance, <laughs> no Nordstrom Rack, maybe a thrift store now and then just for inspiration. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was pretty I'm pretty I think I'm pretty good about not overindulging in in purchases. Okay, so tell us a little bit about the visible mending part of this cuz I'm sure this had to come up as a a year of wearing clothes would they get worn. <laughs> what yes. was your most creative version of this? Socks. I mean, and uh, and I was sort of like why am I spending all this time to repair a $1 sock that you get from Costco, <laughs> you know, fixing the heel. But it was more of a creative process for me um, mm-hmm. because I was in this textiles class and learning embroidery. It was a chance to practice these embroidery stitches mm-hmm. and, you know, experimenting with can I put, you know, cotton that's not very flexible with these socks that are stretchy. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of just experimenting with fabric too. Yeah. It must have been kind of fun. It was super fun. And it's it. My socks were awesome. <laughs> they looked really cool by the <laughs> end of it, I did. bet. <laughs> you're just layering on these different um, threads and different fabrics. So yeah. it was, it was. I think, it better expressed me than, you know, buying something off the rack. Yeah. Was there anything unexpected that you discovered in this process? Mm. How much money you can save when you don't go into the store and, you know, browse because it's like I'm easily tempted when I'm in the store and think, oh, I need that. I need that. I need that. But when you're not in there, you realize, oh, I don't really need that. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> OK, so I won't challenge you yes. to do okay. your 2024 okay. fast fashion fast unless you want to. <laughs> but do you have a New Year's resolution for this year? <sighs> I think it's actually to let go of some things. Mm-hmm. Um as an artist, I love being surrounded by supplies, but I'm one of those people that will save every item of clothing, even though it's worn out, because I, I see the possibility. I also love kind of merging two pieces of items that maybe don't fit right and mm-hmm. see if I can kind of um, do a mashup. I loved Pretty in Pink with Molly Ringwald, so that's <laughs> my inspiration of sort of being able to put two different pieces together and make it work. All right. It's going to be a good 2024, too. Julie Hampton, local artist and writer, joining us to talk about her New Year's resolution that was very successful. Julie, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
That'll do it for this Thursday edition of the show. We'll be back with you again tomorrow morning with much more, including the Friday news cap is always on Fridays, all the political news you can take. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram. We are at KJZZ, the show. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.